I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, yes, mix up the legend that is Mick Talbot from the Style Council who joins me for a very special episode. We talk performing with The Jam, forming the Style Council, and those incredible singles, EPs, albums, videos, and live dates, including Tokyo, Glastonbury, Live Aid, and so much more. Let's get straight into it. Hey, Mick, thanks for joining me. That's all right. It's nice to be here. I know so many fans are going to love the fact that you're joining us on this podcast. There's so much to cover. I want to kick off, if you don't mind, with Long Hot Summers, because the most recent thing in so many of our heads around the Style Council is that fabulous documentary at the end of last year. How did it feel being involved in that and watching that? Because I'm guessing you sat down and watched it on Sky when it was on. And and how did did that feel looking back on your life? (laughs) Uh, It was quite emotional, actually, you know, even though uh, we had like a semi-lockdown situation when it aired, there was a uh, screening for uh, maybe 30 principal people, just staff that worked on it and some of the principal people that were in it. And um, that was quite emotional to see that in a small cinema in the back of a hotel in the West End. Yeah, it's just like, you just think, oh, who was that boy? And uh, <laughs> what was he thinking? <laughs> <laughs> It looked like the whole thing was an awful lot of fun, which we're going to go through this in in a sec. But it, it was lovely watching. I watched it again last night, and it's just brilliant because it's it's bonkers. The, the, the Style Council, some of the things you were doing was bonkers, but the music and the legacy of these tracks and these songs and these albums, it all still stacks up. So I'm so excited to be diving into this and talking about this. But to kick off, I want to understand when it was that you first became aware of Paul Weller? Well, I first uh, saw the jam very early 1977. A friend of mine went to the first night of a residency they did. I think they did um, four consecutive gigs at the Red Cow in Hammersmith, early 77. Before they were signed, or or they may have been signed, but they definitely didn't have any records out. I've got a feeling it was probably 
spring of 77. I don't think Inner City came out until about May or something. Maybe I, I could have that wrong. But it was definitely before then. And uh, a friend of mine had seen them on the first week, and I don't think that it was full. And then we went, uh, he took a few of us up there, maybe the second or third week, and there was a queue going around the block. And uh, I think by the fourth week, it was mad. I didn't go there more than once, but I saw them. That was the first time. And uh, what enticed me about that was at the time, my friend and I were both big fans of Dr. Feelgood, and he just went, look, this is a band that are more our age, but they've got some of that about them, you know, and uh, something about their visual image, the energy, uh, the rhythm and blues roots and things like that. So it was it was really refreshing to see, you know, Paul's about five months older than me, and uh, to see someone of your own sort of generation doing that. And um, they kind of come up with that first wave of sort of punks, but they had their own thing. They were one of the first handful of bands, but they were the only ones that didn't deny a past. Everyone else was trying to make out that like mm. 77 was year zero and people had just been left here by a spaceship and <laughs> no one had ever heard of Chuck Berry or the Rolling Stones or the Who or Kinks or anything. But, you know, most of the jam set that night was cover versions. So they were doing a, they did a Who number, they did um, a Lee Dorsey number, uh, they did In the Midnight Hour. So they did a few soul covers and they did play in the city. I think they played it twice. (laughs) Um, So they were quite, quite proud of that one. But it was really refreshing to hear that and see it. And also some of the covers they were doing, I thought, I've got that record. That's great. That really makes sense to me. That's all, you know. It connects. And I thought there was, like I say, a sort of honesty about them compared to some of the other bands that they came up with. And were you in a band yourself at that point? Did you know that you were work in music? Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd been in a band uh, ever since, I don't know, I was about 14, different school bands and bits and bobs. But by then I was in a band with my brother and a few people we went to school with. So we were always trying to look to what was going on and um, later on in the day when I did get to know Paul a bit better we compared notes we come from a similar sort of uh, background we're both suburban from the south side of London I suppose I'm a bit closer to the middle than he was but we both had to pay our dues at working men's clubs and where you're about fourth on the bill underneath the raffle the bingo the pie man the fish man (laughs) you're not really high up the pecking order you've got to announce all these people because you've got a microphone but um (laughs) it holds you in good stead when you're having a rough night in dundee and the crowd turns nasty you know (laughs) if you've uh, experienced collierswood constitutional club or friars metal foundry club and things like that it tests your metal <laughs> and was it always the keys was it always that focus for yes you? yeah i yeah i i grew up with my dad's mother my nan she played the piano by ear and i got kind of enchanted by that at quite a young age and uh she played by ear she didn't read music but she showed me a few things i sort of stuck with it from there on you know i mean as a kid there's quite a lot of stuff to lug around if you're carrying around your keyboard it's not like a, an easy thing to travel around with is it a big a big piano? no it's not <laughs> No, but you're 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 fortunate if you've got sort of uh, mum and dad that are encouraging. I mean, my dad and my mum were both into music, and they were quite encouraging. And um, we kind of got together. The band that I was in, where we first started earning some decent money around some of the clubs, Steve, the guitarist, his dad was a builder, so he could get a van, and we could get quite a lot of stuff in the back of that. And, and I'm talking about before I was of an age to try and pass a test and get a car. But as soon as I could get a car. 
I made sure I got an estate, rusty old estate, but it just had more room in it and, you know, you could cart things about better and it was just, uh, yeah, and I mean, that was just it. Once you knew that you wanted to do that, that was your world revolved around that. You know, you did Saturday jobs and paper rounds and things to pay off your first electric piano that was on, on the never. When did your paths first cross with Paul? I was aware of his band from like that early 77 thing. Um, I guess about two years Later, 79, uh, the band I was in, the Merton Parkers, we used to play at the Two Brewers in Clapham at a good stage. Uh, we played there, and um, one of the regulars there was a guy called Walt Davidson, and he knew the jam. And I think he shot the pictures on the back of the uh, In the City Sleep on the picture bag of the single. So he, he just, I don't know that he concentrate on photography especially, but he was a big fan of the jam and they wanted to use some live shots that he had of him. So I think he mentioned us to the band. There was a rumour that Bruce came down to two brewers and crept in the back, but, you know, it was quite a packed pub and he could have been up the back and watched us. And then a few months after that, we played a gig upstairs at Ronnie Scott's. They used to have the non-jazz gigs upstairs. And um, Rick was in the crowd and... Uh, Somebody talked him into getting up with us and we played an encore of In the Midnight Hour and um, that right. drummer had to play, play a tambourine because Rick by that time was, you know, rock and roll royalty. So um, <laughs> so he got up and played with us. And, but uh, I don't know if I was in the same room with Paul until late 79. But he'd, he'd met my brother who was in the band a few times. My brother was, uh, he worked for an ad agency in Soho. So he bumped into Paul a bit more. I had a normal job, but I was in the city. So I wasn't circulating in that same sort of West End bit where Paul would be around quite a lot. So he talked to him, told him about band. And I think Paul said, yeah, I've heard of you through people, possibly Walt. I don't know. He was just trying to chat him up about um, possibly producing us, but nothing never ever came of that. And, um, but Paul just sort of remembered us. And I think he got a copy of our single. And um, and like I've said before, he, he didn't like it, but he bothered to listen to the B-side and there's a piano solo on it. And he just thought there was something in my playing. And then I got booked to play on the track Heatwave, which was the closing track on Setting Sun's album. So that was when I first actually met him. That album's terrific, but you must have... There must have been something between the two of you that stuck in um, Paul's mind of actually, you know, this guy's great. There's something in the future, I guess. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe kept me in mind. You know, I mean, shortly after that, didn't go on tour with them, but when they played the Rainbow in London, I got up and did the encore just so that they could play something that was closer to the uh, recorded version. So played an electric piano on that, and then um, a little while after, I, I never went on tour with them, but I did play. A slightly longer set with them. I played about six tunes on a couple of their London dates a little while after that on Hammond. And I think when we were preparing for that, because I had to go to rehearsals for that, Bruce and Rick took a break and went to lunch, but Paul didn't. And one of his road crew, Dave Little, and Paul and I were jamming soul tunes. And I was like playing the Hammond. And Paul was alternating between guitar and going on the drums. And Dave was playing a bass. And they were just swapping instruments and I just stayed on the Hammond and we played a few old soul tunes, you know, and I think that's probably when we kind of gelled a bit more, you know. Um, but then I didn't see him for quite a while and then towards the end of 82, late summer, he just said, oh, I want to meet you up the West End and uh, got something in mind like a project 
And I, I, don't, I didn't think it was like a long-running permanent thing or a bad thing, but, you know, you just said, look, keep it under your hat. Um, I'm knocking the jam on the head, and I've got this idea for, like, a, a band, if you want to call it a band, but more of a floating lineup. And that was like the sort of the germ of the idea that became Star Council. So, uh, wow. When you were doing those gigs with the jam, presumably you, you noticed a big difference between that band that you saw in 77 before they were signed to then being, like you mentioned, like rock and roll royalty for, for Rick. But you, you've obviously, yeah, you, well, you can see that transition to something that's incredible, I'm guessing. Yeah, they made, I mean, they made a lot of progress. I mean, I think 79 was a key year for them. It's like, you know, they'd been working really hard for two years. And then I think something kind of clicked with the Setting Suns album where they, you know, I mean, I think that they really hit their stride with all with cons, you know, but there's something to merit the first two albums as well, you know, but um, something happened in 79 where they kind of, I don't know, I think they gained mainstream acceptance. They could get on Radio 1 during the day and not just on John Peel. And so that was a change, you know. Yeah, they definitely arrived, but they weren't uh, full of it. You know, they were quite down to earth. All of them. And so many of the fans have talked about, um, you know, meetings with the band and being able to go into sound checks and backstage afterwards and things. It feels like they were very much connected and normal people um, versus some of the others. And at the time when Paul gives you a call and says, let's meet up the West End and chat about this project, were you in the Bureau then or had that come to an end at that point? That had come to an end. I mean, that's what I, I was pretty fortunate because I was on the dole by that time. I've done normal jobs till I was about 20. And then when Paul muted that idea, I think I was 23, and I seemed to have gone through a band a year that had been signed to labels and dropped. So <laughs> the shelf life of like these three bands I've been in seemed to be about a year. And I, I was sort of at a point where I thought, well, maybe the game's up, you know, maybe it's time to go back to the real world. And um, in the nick of time, he came in and, uh, and I didn't have to leave the circus. You know. Was there ever any, any doubt in your head of teaming up with this guy? Because I, there must have been a huge amount of pressure on, you know, the Jammer Massive. He's at that point, you know, it's a bit of a secret, but not soon after he, he announces he's splitting the jam. And whatever's coming next, there's massive pressure on to, for it to be successful, I would guess. I, I guess so, but I, he didn't seem to feel that. I mean, I, in that meeting, I just thought, wow, he's got so many ideas and he seems so focused and driven. If it's half as good as he thinks it's going to be, it'll be a laugh anyway. It'll be great. And it just seemed there was so much liberation. And also, you know, he had a profile and a reputation but he didn't rest on his laurels. He was really going to take it somewhere else. Like I said, I didn't have anything to lose. <laughs> he had plenty to lose. Yeah. So uh, I'm fortunate that he was brave enough to sort of take it somewhere completely different. I chatted with um, Zeke Manika about those first sessions. And I was thinking yesterday, I was thinking, for those of us in normal jobs, when you go from one job and maybe you're burnt out, or you're tired, or it's time to move on, and you start another job, they often talk about like a 90-day plan. And you start this new job and you're so enthusiastic, you've got loads of ideas, you're really creative, you're buzzing, and you're just kind of bang. into. And, and also, when you start a brand new job, you don't get any emails from anybody, so you can actually get all this stuff. It's lovely. And it feels a bit to me like the start of the Style Council was exactly that, like that 90-day plan, if you like. You hit the ground running. The amount of stuff that came out of those very early sessions with Zeke and and Pete Wilson in those first sessions was so creative. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, you know, we didn't we didn't work with Zeke that long, but yet the three of the first four singles came out of what happened in a couple of days with him. And one of them wasn't even planned. You know, Money Go Round was just a jam between takes. And we were fortunate that Pete Wilson put 
the tape on, you know. He had the uh, fortitude to sort of like think, this sounds quite good, I'll press record. And Paul just had this great notebook with like all these stanzas of sort of things. And he just said, I think this might work with uh, that jam. If we edit it up a bit, it might work. So that was very fortunate, you know. I mean, Zeke's a tremendously talented person and he was just very quick and he had a nice feel, you know. How much did you have a plan? How much did you know what you wanted to do in those first couple of years, particularly leading up to Cafe Blur and our favourite shop? Was it all experimentation or was there something in mind of you knowing what you wanted to achieve? The only thing that Paul really stipulated in the first year was he didn't want to uh, do an album too soon. I think he wanted to do a lot of singles. He, He was happy to do EPs. We were planning to do EPs in different locations around the world, but we only got as far as one, which was... Our Paris. You know, we got a bit diverted from that, but we were going to do possibly one in Holland and another one somewhere else, like an Alpine one <laughs> somewhere. Uh, uh, but um, we never got round to that. But um, that format of just singles and um, some of the 12s had three tracks on them. The EP had four tracks on them. If we did a seven and a 12, we didn't always have the same B-side on. So we tried to give a bit of a unique thing to each thing and all the singles were not incorporated. The first year's singles weren't part and parcel of the first album either. So we were certainly trying to give people value for money. And also I think it reflected our respect for singles. I don't know if it was waning then. I don't, you know, I mean, they don't even exist now, I don't think, singles. What was new song? I don't even know that it's actually a a proper single, is it? I'm not sure. No, well, no, but this is the thing. Uh, This just comes back to the power of the B-side and where a B-side got me and Paul and I had many long, probably boring conversations to an outsider about B-sides of things. You know, we talk about classic records now. Yes, but do you know the B-side? Because quite often, bands will sort of like try things that they might not try. Sometimes they'll just knock something out and they won't be as attentive as they might be to a thing. But sometimes something quite special can come out of B-sides, you know. And um, and I think we we gave value for money with our B-sides, you know. Yeah, and they're equally, the amount of classic tracks that you would talk about on those B-sides from the Style Council is just incredible. But you mentioned the Paris, or Our Paris, the EP, the songs that just came out of those, was it two days then, was it? Since we got like Long Hot Summer, Party Chambers, Paris Match, and the Debate. I think we were there Monday to Friday, but I don't know if we did five days. I don't know if we did four days or five days. I'm not sure. Sh- I'm not sure. But um, yeah, well, you know, it... it- it worked, you know. We packed a lot in, especially in that first year. Um, we didn't really do much in the way of live work. I look back on it now and just think, well, wow, we were doing so much and we're sort of like, and we got a lot of shopping in and we did some photos <laughs> and, and and occasionally we ate. Um, but it, it at the time, it didn't seem unusual and there was a kind of momentum to it and a lot of things were really clicking. And also, we didn't flog a dead horse, really. If, if things weren't really clicking, we didn't stick with them and we'd move on to other stuff. We're fortunate in so much as Paul had such a lot of material and it was just a, a joy to be able to express yourself on that. And that's the beauty of Paul as well, is if he thinks he's got the right team around him, he's happy for them to do what they instinctively think. So it's not like a sort of session where you're very you're in a straitjacket and he wants one thing and only one thing it's not, you know, it doesn't narrow your path down like that so you've got the liberation to express exactly what you felt about it and fortunately 
that all sort of gelled, you know. That nucleus of you and he at the beginning soon expands out to feature D and Steve White as, the, as mainly like the four of you as the star yeah. council. The honorary council is such an interesting concept because that was there from day one with Zeke and then others. Um, and over, I think there are over 100 honorary councillors in total. <laughs> but it was lovely, this idea that you would just bring in talented people that you'd want to work with both for live work and for the singles and this big yeah. rotating lineup. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I mean, pretension is never far away from the surface with the style council, but it's part and parcel of our humour. But I used to like likening that to each song being like a screenplay and you're kind of casting for it. And that's why Cafe Blur works so well, because on certain tracks, I'm not on it and Paul's not on it, but we're sort of directing things and we're using the best people to get the job done and trying to put the song above anyone's personal ego. Because we've both been in bands where, you know, I don't know, the harmonica player just always says the harmonica needs to be twice as loud <laughs> whenever you're mixing and you just think, hang on, you know, just ease up a bit, mate. There was always that to it. And I, I likened it to sort of someone like Orson Welles who had the Mercury players. And you see a lot of his classic films the same sort of half dozen people turn up, but then there's new people as well. So there's a core of people that seem to ebb and flow through most of his best work, but on occasion he'll bring in others, you know, so I thought of it a bit like that. You couldn't imagine this now where your debut album comes out and there's none of these singles are on it. So now it's like you mentioned the singles now, it feels like the singles are as much an ad for the, or a promotional tool for the album as anything else. But Speak Like a Child, Money Go Round, Long Hot Summer, Solid Bond in Your Heart, these first singles aren't on the album. The album opens with Mixed Blessing, which is just bloody brilliant. I think we were thinking of an album like, you know, we started with instrumental, finished with instrumental. There's probably about six on that. <laughs> on that. Anyway, but I mean, we were almost treating that like credit music, you know, like if it was a film, it, again, the film sort of analogy. Uh, so this is like, as you're finding your seat, you'll be hearing that. And as you're leaving the theatre, you'll be hearing this, you know. So it's uh, either like filmic or theatrical, you know, where you get your overtures and beginners sort of shout at the beginning and closing credits. And so there was a sort of a bit of theatre to that, I suppose. And how much of those instrumentals were you going, this is something I've worked up, and was it a collaboration between the two of you, those ones? Well, no. Well, I wrote Mixed Blessings, um, but the some of the other stuff we co-wrote, some stuff Paul wrote on his own. Yeah, Mixed Blessings was uh, just a thing that I used to vamp a lot. And uh, Paul says, what's that? And, you know, it's it's very short and sweet. It sort of does the job of setting the, the thing up, I suppose, you know. Um, I don't think we deliberated too much on that. The first one I did was Mix Up, which was on the back of uh, Money Go Round 12. And that got quite a lot of attention outside of people that we would normally like us, I think. I mean, that was our first mention we got in Blues and Soul, and they could be quite sort of elitist about things, but they they like that. And um, I think the NME, uh, somebody did like X Moore, a journalist who later had a band called The Redskins. He made a song and dance about that track as well. That seemed to have something special. And a few people said they thought it had sort of loose, Northern soul feel. I didn't really know what it had. It was just me playing piano and then putting a Hammond organ on top of it. And it wasn't, it didn't have a bass on it. It didn't really have a drum kit. It was quite unconventional, but it had, it just had an atmosphere and it was just, you know, it was a laugh and we tried something and it worked. The other one was um, dropping bombs on the White House, which is just a, a brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was kind of to try and make a clumsy pun on Steve's uh, name. <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> and and uh, create a little controversy. But um, dropping bombs is a term for uh, that jazz drummers use for a certain thing they do. I'm sure Steve White could explain that a lot better than I can. But I know it when I hear it. And usually if you get a jazz-style drum solo, they'll be dropping bombs at certain points. And it's a sort of punctuation thing. So that's what it was alluding to. And, uh, you know, it was just uh, a bit of fun. It's a great debut album. It's a great album, full stop. I have to say, I love it. You couldn't imagine it nowadays where the the band's first album comes out, like I say, and it hasn't got any of those singles on. But the other thing about it is the the tracks it has got are very different versions. So even Paris Match has got Tracy Thorne, like you say, you and Paul are on some things. Ever-Changing Moves is Paul and Piano versus the single version that then came out. Well, it's actually me and him, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I saw on the documentary, I think it was Peter Peter Powell's show, um, I can't remember what the TV show was, where it was just you and him performing it on TV as well. So that on, duo initially was just, it was just you two. But then, like I say, at which point did you go, okay, well, Dee and Steve are now like a permanent fixture. And what did they well, bring think, to the band? Well, the further we got down the line in, in 83, you know, the pre- there was a looming sort of thought of like, yeah, let's get out and play some stuff live, you know. And um, Steve, his first session he did for us was a Kid Jensen radio session with um, just about, I don't know, 12 hours notice, really. We just went in and uh, Paul had only just written Paris Match. So it was sort of pretty new to me, let alone Steve. And he was just sort of like, we said, oh, we've got to check the mics and run through some things. We'll just play you this one. And that's probably the strongest song of the session. And Steve's just playing it blind, you know, and he just did a good job. But once we could see that he he could handle that sort of pressure, as well as his sort of natural ability, he was going to be a stent appointed to the drum position for the live thing. and. and we really got on well with Dee, you know. She came in and she clicked really quickly when we did Money Go Round. That's the first thing we did with her. So that was becoming apparent that they'd be pretty permanent because it made sense when we were trying to put a live band together, you know. You mentioned live. I've got so many questions from fans asking questions about, about your live shows. And I've watched so many clips back on YouTube because I didn't experience it at the, at the time, I'm afraid. Um, well, you're too young, aren't you? I, I know. Young. Gutted. It seemed to gel live very, very quickly with, like you, like I mentioned, the honorary counsellors, but you found the right people to make this band work. But a lot of them, I mean, all of you are kids, but, you know, White is 17, um, Anthony Hart is like 17. The amount of trust you had in these people who this is the first time they're really properly playing and going out on tour is incredible. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think uh, it's important to have a sort of the right spirit, really. I mean, you know, Cafe Blur, when I listen back to it now, at times, I think I think maybe what I was trying to do then I could do better now, but would it, it wouldn't have half the spirit, and that was the essence of putting the live band together as well. And the first time we went out live, it was very interesting because we had uh, as many girls as men in the band, and it was like eight piece. You know, both the horns were girls. We didn't feel that oh girls just do backing vocals. It, you know, so that that was kind of different as well, and. Um, yeah, I think Anthony Hart, he was 16 when he came on the road with us. Yeah, he was a good year and a half younger than Steve. And Steve could have, when we first did a radio session with him, he was 17. He was 18 soon after, I think. So, but um, yeah, and Steve Sedelnik, who played percussion with us for quite a while, he was only about a year older than Steve. Yeah, it's like Paul said, it was like a, a youth club. Really? Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like I mean, it sounds like a right laugh as well. The, uh, the some of the honorary councillors have talked about those, that first tour in Europe um, and and going on stage wearing ski suits and 
you know, nights out and stuff. It sounds like a when when you look back at the you know look at the videos, you look at the documentary and everything as well. It sounds like you know humor and was was such a big part of that that band's success as well, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it, I mean, you know, we we had a laugh. I mean, we were serious about the music and uh, we tackled some quite serious topics in the lyrical content of some of the songs, you know, and they were saying something quite uh, pertinent to the times we were living in. You know, the 80s were a time of quite extreme political change. So on, on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, there's like, come on, we all know this is all the facade. We just go out and we play this little game and we have to do. And I think, you know, we found that the video was uh, a powerful promotional tool for like music we believed in, but we thought there's a lot of hanging about. Surely we can invent some stupid storyline where we dress up in something even stupider than the last one on the next one and, and do something a bit far-fetched or pretend that we're sort of... Uh, international sort of milk race champions or uh, all sorts of things or, or with a couple of Cambridge Dons or something or punting up the cam and, you know, just things that were quite extremely away from what we really were, but just something to kill the time while you're filming because it's astonishing how much you have to do just to get three minutes in the can, you know. I mean, some of those videos you mentioned, like the Lodgers and um, Come to Milton Keynes, is, is absolutely bonkers, but it looks like you're having a real laugh. And that's such a difference for Paul and the Jam, which I'm guessing was a real pressure cooker for him, it seems, from everybody I've spoken to. It's yeah, well, I, I think he was keen to just do something. I, I don't think Paul ever, ever liked having to live up to what people thought he was, you know. He, no one's that two-dimensional. And he, uh, I think he he was keen to just have a laugh and sometimes people would get it and people moaned about it being an in-joke and this, that and the other. But I think what I quite like about the fact that, you know, you mentioned Long Hot Summers, the uh, documentary, and there was a box set that came out soon after that. Regardless of all the silly outfits and half puns or clumsy sort of uh, in-jokes, at the end of the day, it's the music that really counts. And that's, you know, whenever we made music, we were serious about that. We did have quite a laugh, really. And a lot, a lot of that came from Paul. You know, it's not people sometimes say, oh, did you sort of like tell him to cheer up because he seemed like he was miserable before or whatever? And he said, no, that's so sort of like, that's just, <laughs> that's so demeaning to him if you really knew him. And I think it's all about if you're the right team and people trust, you and Paul's got the right people around him. He's nothing like that kind of uh, caricature that the press may have you believe. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Nicky Weller was saying that about the two of you, particularly of just how Paul had found like his his match essentially, and the <laughs> well, two of I you know, just bounced off each other so well. Yeah, but a lot of the wacky ideas were certainly his, and it's just that I was up for him. You know, it's just it, it's not me coming in and going, "Hang on, I'm the Joker." Here we go. Stop me if you've heard this one before and all that. It's like, no, it was a lot of it was coming from him. And he's just, are you up for this? Are you up for that? Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's hire, hire some mad outfits from uh, wherever and uh, let's go for it and do it, you know. You mentioned about daft ideas. There's a few questions from the fans who have got in touch. All Scott 67 is one of them. Um, and you mentioned about some of these daft ideas coming from Paul. So he says, did Weller... I love this. Like he's a football player. Did Weller ever have any mad ideas for the Style Council where Mick had to say, hang on a minute, Paul? (laughs) 
And then Neil, Neil G adds, I'm sure the Jerusalem film may came, may have come up in conversation at some point. So Jerusalem is um, this film, which is essentially, you mentioned about trying to kind of, kind of um, find new ways to create promo videos. And this was basically yeah. a, a longer, like, I don't know, half hour film, wasn't it? Which is just, I mean, it's absolutely bonkers, but, but brilliantly so, because the songs in it are great. They're the songs from Cost of Loving. So this is to promote your third album. Tell me about where that came from, that whole experience and how that came about. Well, I think we, you know, there's a certain budget for each single or what have you. And we wanted to try and get the whole of that budget in one hit. Uh, and then we did an advert for um cassette company in Japan. I think it was BASF. And we, so we got the money from that and added that to like the money for like, I don't know, three promos over the course of the next year or what have you. And just said, can we make this short film? It was about 35 minutes, I think. And it ran over half an hour. And out of that, we all got equity cards, I think. So so we, it must mean we can act, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> or we can't act. Or, some, or, would, that, some would question that in terms of yeah, the, the well, film. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, to be honest with you, that other question where, you know, did, did Wurla... Wurla! <laughs> yeah, well, there's a propensity to sort of say that about Paul. To me, Paul's Paul. Yeah, uh, but you know, I understand what people mean. Um, he did he ever put anything to me where I just went, "Hang on a minute," uh, I don't think he ever did. And also, I think it only encouraged me. I just thought this is great. You don't have to be yourself. The more you can disguise yourself, the more you sort of like lose your inhibitions. And you know, in a way, playing in a band is a bit like an act. You know, it's just like you know, I've been trying to act as if I know what I'm doing on keyboards for a long time. And sometimes I can convince people when other times I can't, you know. So so you're not that far away from mainstream showbiz, lovey. And uh, so we were just dabbling in that, and we thought we might be able to do something that was kind of loosely sort of satirical and make a few points. And some of it's like very, you know, bizarre. And then there's points made about race and class and unfair division and, the haves and have not. So it's a bit like a sort of, a, I don't know, like a political cartoon um, yeah. in a way. <laughs> so the Star Counts are out on bail and they're charged with being the best pop group ever is how it started. Your master Mick Tall, but he's Paul Welly. It's, um, I mean, it's brilliantly bonkers, like you say, from that point of view. But also, I and we have skipped over our favourite shop, so I'm going to come back to that in a sec. But that third album, okay. it gets a bit of a hard deal in terms of your... Uh, output, but I, I think it's a brilliant album. There's so much I love about that Orange album. Yeah, well, there is there are some songs that work. I, I do, you know, I, I sort of tend to agree it's, it's possibly our weakest album. Um, you know, it kind of, I think we put more into the production of it than the actual songs. So I, I've, in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, mm. I think that uh, we were so clearly trying not to make our favourite shot Mark II, which we could have done, and we had that conversation at the time. We knew we could have uh, just followed our favourite shop up with something very similar, and it would have done a lot better. We tried to take it somewhere else. We tried to embrace sort of contemporary sort of soul influences, whereas I think looking back on it, we always had a bit of that, but we kept our own thing about it. So a track like Long Hot Summer that had drum machine, synth, bass, uh, so it wasn't very retro it was quite of its time yet it had a hammond organ and it had a few classic things as well and it was very us it was very influenced by music we grew up with in the early 70s like the delphonics 
from the vocal harmony approach. But then it was influenced by records that had come out only a few months before we made it with the way we programmed the drum machine and used the synth bass. So we were kind of already there in our own way. And then with the Orange album, I don't know if we were trying to sort of get so into like that American sort of contemporary soul at the time production ethic that it kind of lost some of our own identity in a way, you know. But that's only apparent to me many years later, you know. Mm. But I do think that that kind of did divide a lot of people that were kind of into us. But all, all we were doing when we did that was following our nose, and that's all we'd ever done, really. And we were just we were fortunate to uh, click up until then, I'd mm. say. You know. Yeah, that seems something to me that Paul was always done after the Style Council as well, of constantly pushing forward himself to try different things, to experiment. It sounds like the new album's going to be that that again. And sometimes you risk leaving the audience behind and them not coming on with the ride, but it seems like you're aware of that and that's that's fine. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's just being true to yourself. It's the most honest you can be as a performer, really. It's just, it's like I say, if you'd made Our Favourite Shop Part 2, you would have made twice as much money, probably. It's not what it's about, it's trying to go somewhere new and fresh. And Our Favourite Shop is, I mean, it is a masterpiece. It's a brilliant, brilliant album. But you guys were so bloody clever at wrapping up some of these really pointy lyrics in catchy pop songs. So some of them, I mean, so cussing of the government of the time, and rightly so, but wrapped mm. up in a, in, a, in a pop song that's fun and <laughs> upbeat. And it's just incredible. I mean, some of them obviously, you know, are angry as well, but... But you were absolute masters at that. You know, it was just, it's, it was something that we quite liked doing, you know, something like All Gone Away, which sounds quite, you know, samba influenced and very bright and breezy from a musical perspective, but um, not really from a lyrical thing. And we like that juxtaposition, I think, on a lot of those tunes. One part of the Long Hot Summers documentary is Live Aid. And I'm thinking, I think I'm right in saying Glastonbury came first and then Live Aid was, was after. Was that right? Uh, yeah, if you say so. I mean, 85 <laughs> not, I'll was... i that around in the edit. But yeah. Well, even just the, the day of Live Aid was just such a condensed, compressed sort of... Yeah. Four different things happened on that day, let alone in that week. So, uh, yeah, you're probably right, yeah, because, um, yeah, Glastonbury is one of the early festivals, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, probably. Yeah, in the June, wasn't it? And actually one person's asked, a few people have asked, I must get these questions in. So gigging in the early days was UK, Europe, worldwide. They mm. were massive. And you, you mentioned Japan earlier on. Style Council in Japan was huge, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it was nuts. That's the closest you can get to sort of imagining just being a very small grain of sand, but like Beatlemania, it's like there was sort of such a frenzy in Tokyo when we arrived there. And um, and I don't think it was unique to our band. I just think the bands are just so extreme in their appreciation of people that come over. But you got caught a glimpse of, you thought, oh, you know, I don't think we've ever been that sort of band that would be like the Beatles, but you can imagine just experiencing a little bit of that you know how that may have been and it was mad it was mad yeah it was just and did you know to expect it had you been warned that it was going to be like that did you know you were that big yeah paul had been there a bit and he just went you know you're there's a few things that he used to say when when you go there he said uh you'll start nodding to everyone and go no i won't do that i mean (laughs) you know i respect their thing but you you can't help it it's such a part of it you know, it's part of the way you speak to people when it's polite. And, um, yeah, it was a real eye-opener. And also, back then, I suppose, 
early 80s, uh, it did seem almost like a different planet in a way. I mean, I th- I've been there since. I think it, it's it's a shame, actually, that it seems to be getting more and more westernised in a way, but it did have its sort of own thing. You know, it just seemed like a unique little place, you know. And it was a bit like um, turning up in Blade Runner or something, Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> There's a question from Mikio Nakamura who says, I've asked this question to several members, including Paul. Do you remember the Osaka riots? In, this is the April 1984 gig. <laughs> does this ring a bell? Yes, I do. I do remember the Osaka riots. And we just said uh, we were very impressed with how uh, there's a very sort of um, polite nature to the whole Japanese nation. And to a large degree, they seem to conform to this kind of really regimented sort of politeness. And they're very, they can be quite heavy from a security perspective about people standing up in theatres or dancing or getting into things. And I think Osaka is like, you know, quite a long way from Tokyo. So we, our experience in Tokyo was nothing like Osaka. And Osaka just turned into something a bit mad. I think I think the security would get a bit heavy with some girls that wanted to dance. And I think Paul saw it and we, we were talking to our own fellas that were working and just going, don't let that happen. This is a bit mad. It looks like you know, I don't know, some kung fu expert starting on a little 14-year-old girl or something, and it all looks a bit heavy-handed. And I think out of that, we just said, if you want to dance, you can dance. And then before you knew it, I think we had like half the crowd on stage dancing. <laughs> and, and it was just like, hang on, this has gone, this has gone from one extreme to another. <laughs> and, uh, and when we left, we thought, well, these people seem spirited in a different way to people in Tokyo. And we sort of said, maybe we should twin Osaka with... Um, Glasgow, because we felt like it was like similar comparison. Like we've been to London, now we're going to Glasgow. And if they want to dance, they'll dance. <laughs> Did you have those? That's one of the questions from Baggy Man. Um, what your favourite British venue was that you played? Did you have those favourite venues that you knew uh, like, would always like, kick yeah. off? It would always be brilliant. Well, I like playing Glasgow and I like playing the Apollo. And I think we were one of the last bands to play there before it got knocked down. And I think near the end of the, <laughs> the end of. The gig, we got the whole crowd singing, it's coming down on Tuesday. <laughs> la, 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 it's coming down. So we were sort of like trying to celebrate it. But the thing, the great thing about Glasgow, it's like, you know, they either love you or they want to kill you. Really. It's just like, you know, if you're appreciated there, it certainly is genuine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Mentioned Live Aid. So you were second on after Status Quo. And this, I mean... Looking again at the images, and I remember watching it at the time because my mum, we were, I was young enough to be playing out the front. My mum kept running, running out, bringing us back in to watch yet another band on Live Aid. It was off the scale, and that, that was still really early days for the Style Council. That must have been so nerve-wracking, so we terrified knowing that there's 90,000 people in the stadium, but also billions watching around the world. Yeah, it was. It was. It was just it, the, the more you thought about it, the, the worse it got. You know, I, I'm quite pleased that we were on early and um and we didn't really mess up too much and you know we just did what we had to do and uh you know it's it was more about what it stood for you know it was certainly a unique thing you know and it's uh you know love him or love him it was a phenomenal achievement by Bob Geldof, you know the look of the band as well you look so sharp and actually all we've not touched on this but the 
the fashion, I mean, the 80s was a terrible time for fashion, but somehow you lot got away with it because you, you <laughs> seem to, looking back on so much of the stuff, a lot of it, you look so stylish, all of you. Was that something that you had in common with Paul from day one, the music, but also the fashion? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, you know, like I say, there's only a few months between us, about four and five months in age. So we grew up in a similar sort of uh, way, appreciating clothes once we were sort of 11 or 12. I guess we were a bit too young to experience the first mod thing. But um, by the time we got to the end of the 60s, when Paul and I were like 11, going into 1970, there was this sort of thing that had fallen out of skinheads called suede heads, who were kind of like mods like five years later. Like, And it was a very stylish thing. And then all of those lessons that you learned from elder kids at school about clothes sort of stayed with us and it kind of forms what you are. It forms what Paul dresses in now to the point of certain colours being very de rigueur and things that you never do and don't do, but it's all unsaid. But, I mean, Paul and I could talk about that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Donkey's years without touching the same thing exactly. And we went on holiday together and both our partners were getting bored with us talking about it all the way to the Caribbean. <laughs> he said, you two have been talking about trousers for about seven hours. <laughs> you know, it's pathetic. But, you know, it, it just... If you've got a bond with someone like that and you know certain things, it stays with you and it follows through, you know. How much chat was there about the white Levi's? Because that was a big thing, wasn't it? Well, they were kind of quite a sort of hard thing to get. I mean, you know, nowadays you can get anything, I suppose, and you don't have to leave the country. But when you're on tour and you just go, right, we're in Rome. They're definitely going to have a lot here. Yeah, right. So we've got to hit the shops. And it's just like a mission, you know. And, I, you know, I think Paul's described me and him as like two old girls at a jumble sale <laughs> when we're on a quest for clothes. And you'd sort of, and I think uh, Paris was quite good for that as well. Uh, they seemed to have more than we had. Or now and again, you'd hear about someone somewhere in uh, London or somewhere where they, oh, they've got some white leaper. So that became a bit of a thing, you know. And I think that, that sort of became infectious within the band. Because I've, I've even heard like Helen Turner mentioning that as well. She, you know, who used to play second keyboards with us on tour. She's just going, oh, I remember that thing of like someone just going, hang on, I think I went past the shop. Stop the coach. I think there's some white Levi's in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. And Dastonbury would have been interesting for that as well, I just thought, with the mud. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I think we didn't actually think that through. I think I had white 
white shoes on as well and white <laughs> white trousers and whatever. You know, I mean, Glastonbury was a lot messier then as well. It wasn't quite so corporate and it wasn't so together backstage as it, it, it can be even when the weather is bad. You know, in more recent times, I think it's become a bit more friendly to um, your clothes. But um, there's, there's no getting around it. Uh, you are in the middle of a cow field and if there's been a lot of rain, you know, it's going to get boggy. It's not all mud either, is it? You shouldn't drop your standards. It doesn't mean that we have to turn up looking like we're going to fix your drains. <laughs> um, fast forward to 1988, because Confessions of a Pop Group is my favourite Style Council album. It's it's just remarkable. And, um, and the frustrating thing for me is now, I was listening to it yesterday and I was asking Alexa for it. Um, and I, I just listened over and over again but that's not how it's meant to be experienced is it it's, it feels like the stuff you were doing is meant to be experienced as an album with two sides and that one particularly there's the piano paintings on one confessions of a pop group on the other yeah what's see, was seen as a pop group is so ambitious so different so new so experimentational um so diverse it's and you're pushing the bar production wise it's just but there's it got mixed reviews at the time, but I think now people look back on it and go, actually, it's brilliant because you, you mentioned earlier the songs. The songs on it are bloody hell. They're brilliant. And the, and the instrumentals are lovely. It's just, I think, honestly, it's an, congratulations. It's an incredible bloody piece of work, that. Well, well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, you know, I think it's uh, I think its initial release was a little bit tainted by the album before, really. I just think we'd lost a kind of quite a large section of our kind of following. and. I don't know if people's patience have been worn out by us. You know, uh, I, I think we we were in step with like it was a game of two halves, and the first three years, everything we did, people seemed to get and appreciate, and then you know something happened with the Orange album. But quite often, it can take like a kind of largely derided album can still ride that storm and uh, it's the one that follows that will suffer so um, I think people weren't even interested in hearing it that felt that the Orange album had sort of let them down hmm. so a lot of people didn't didn't want to hear it but um, you know it's 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 got its moments it's uh, it's like anything I think it's a lot of people have appreciated it in retrospect I think you know it's had a sort of reappraisal I don't think it's perfect <laughs> What's wrong with it? No, no, don't tell me. You're spoiling it for me. No, nothing's wrong with it, but I mean, a, a lot of people, you know, it's it's surprising how far-reaching that is. I know that Paul told me he met Brad Pitt, and that's his favourite Style Council album. Oh, and right. and he, we were quite surprised he was even aware of us. No, honestly, it's lovely. I think, but the other thing, there's two things I want to ask you about it. One, the packaging, and this goes through everything about the Style Council. You mentioned about the singles and the EPs and wanting to mm. give value for money. Um, that album is beautiful in terms of the production of the actual LP and the visuals. I was looking the other day on some of the singles and the amount of content and writing on just the back cover of a single with the Cappuccino Kid and stuff. It seemed like that was always a big thing for you as well, the look of the product. Yeah, I think we enjoyed that. And I think, you know, we were fortunate that Simon Halfon understood what we were doing. And uh, Peter Anderson, the photographer, we used on a lot of the earlier stuff. And, you know, we liked quite a lot of sleeve notes that may have been on the back of sort of the blue note influence. We quite like humorous sleeve notes, hence the cappuccino kid. I think some of that was 
obviously influenced by Colin McInnes, some of the language, but also I think a little bit influenced by early Rolling Stones albums. I think Andrew Luke Hold- Oldham used to write their sleeve notes, but I don't think he used to credit himself. I don't know if he had an alias, but he used to speak in a kind of weird language, which was kind of vaguely lifted from Clockwork Orange, I think. Um, so Anthony Burgess, I think. Was that Anthony Burgess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was kind of using some of that sort of uh, speak that they use in Clockwork Orange, the droogs, you know, so dropping in and out of sort of weird slang. So you create a world within a world, you know, just something to, I don't know, entertain people while they're asleep, maybe, you know. No, but it's something you don't get now with, you know, the MP3 of that. And I mentioned on Alexa, I think I was lucky if I even got the lyrics coming out because I've got like a visual one here, you know, the show thing. Um, and, you know, you, you certainly don't get the artwork, those cut, those drawings and cartoons and everything that made up that whole package. No, I mean, you know, I don't even think that albums are sort of like strong secondhand currency, are they? I can remember people where people have lost their jobs and they just go, you know what, I've got, 5,000 albums and I'm going to take 2,000 of them down record and tape exchange and that'll get me out of <laughs> Stuck for another six months. And you just think, you're not going to do that off a computer, are you? You're not going to say... Yeah. Um, I'm going to take your Spotify playlist. <laughs> yes. I'm going to scrape this off and put it in something and make it physical. And No, no but it, was, it was a lovely thing, I have to say. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about was that first track because it's a very deep sea. It's up, you know, up there with one of your very best as a, as a band, but also the one that you returned to last year and I, and I don't think this can now be a spoiler <laughs> because surely everybody's seen the documentary. Come on, people. But this was at the end of the documentary, this lovely little surprise where the four of you, um, you, Paul, Dee and Steve, back together. And that's the song that you picked. And honestly, I mean, there were there were tears all around the nation at that point. It was a lovely thing. How did that bit of you all getting back together happen? It came from Paul. It was Paul's idea. I mean, you know, he's a very forward thinking person and he's not that sort of sentimental or nostalgic. He doesn't like to trade on his past, but I just think he he thought it might be good that, you know, we all still get on. It'd be good to do a track, and that's the one he chose. I think he thinks that's one of his best songs and maybe one of the quite overlooked songs as well, you know. So um, I had to go to Black Barn, his studio, to do a bit of filming on a couple of days. So the first day I went there, Paul mentioned it just prior to me getting there, and he sent me a little um, a little demo, just a, a short, I don't know, less than a minute of him just mucking about with it on the phone. And I listened to it, and I, I sort of suggested that maybe we should change the key. And he went, well, the next time you're back down there, that'll be the day that Dee and Steve are here, and I thought we could all do it. And uh, so on that first occasion, I said to Paul, I'm thinking of changing the key, spoke to him on the phone, and he said, yeah, I think that's a better key now. Okay. So we tried it through, just me and Paul, and then he went, right, we'll leave it at that, and then went, if D and Steve come along, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't, and there was no real pressure. But at the same time, that first day was so great because you're kind of reliving seven years of your life, and it, it, that was quite, that can wash you out a bit, mm. and it's quite intense and, uh, you know, deep scrutiny. At the end of that, Paul sort of just, oh, I think the night before he said, there may be a couple of tracks on my current album I need Hammond on. And I played on that, and but I can't remember the sequence of events because Paul ordered a curry and we sat down and had a curry 
Then all the film crew had gone, and he just went, I'll write these tracks. I went, oh, yeah. So I got home a bit later than I expected, and I said to my wife, oh, I've played on a couple of tracks for his new album. I suppose if they hear it back and it works, I might end up on a new album. <laughs> then when the album came out, it turned out those two tracks were three tracks, and somehow I nod, nodded off for one of them. I'm on it. I don't know, but it was just, there were so many things happening in that one day. And we'd rehearsed just very skeletally that, that track as well. So when Steve and Dee were there, we just needed to sort out how long we wanted the outro, how we we're going to do the intro. And I don't think we played it all the way through until we recorded it. We just sort of sorted out what the front was. We sorted out how long the end was, where we'd get the cue for the nods. And we started playing it. We went, right, we should just play it a few times. We started playing it. We got about less than a minute in and Paul went, hang on, let's stop. And I went, oh, what's wrong? He went, well, it's sounding good. We might as well, let's just do it. So just say to them, yeah, start taping. And we finished it and that was it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's... And, and, and that's what, and I kind of quite like that because it was quite an honest performance as well, you know, and it, and it kept it spontaneous. And that was always the way with us really completely in a circle in a way yeah it shows that magic between the four of you though that the, the fact that i mean i can't i'm trying to do the maths quickly of like the last time you would have played together would have been well what, it would have th- been 30 about years 30, ago or something like that yeah right? yeah because that was uh it was shot late summer 2019 so it was yeah because it was about a year before it came out you know before it yeah. transmitted it was finished well our bit of it was yeah. I don't know if the editing was still going on, but there were a few delays in transmission dates as well. But what was quite fortunate is in the ensuing time, Sky Arts went over to Freeview. So that kind of increased its impact, I suppose. You're going to reach a far greater audience. You know, In a way, it was worth the wait. But I'm surprised that that didn't, you know, the cat didn't get out of the bag really with that. Because in modern times, you know, when my nan used to love Coronation Street, if someone was going to get shot, you didn't know about it until they got shot. But now they tell you about it for six weeks before a major <laughs> soap actor is going to be cast out of it and killed. So, yeah. and with your Twitter and Schmitter and whatever, how did we keep it out? No, you're right. There's no surprises in life now at all, is there, in that sense? It was a phenomenal surprise to people, and it was very emotional for them, I think. And my phone was going berserk. When that finished, when the documentary <laughs> finished, it was mad. Yeah, there's so many of us who want it as a um, as something to listen to as well. It's like you know, come on, release it. <laughs> but it's a it's yeah. A well, I think, yeah, I think somebody bootlegged it and played it a bit on a kind of online radio station. All oh, right, but, uh, I don't know if I should say any more. But actually, but, thirty years since you played, and I'm going to touch on the Royal Albert Hall and that uh-huh. fi- those final dates because depending on who you talk to, there were people ripping up their programs in the in the aisles chucking things at the stage booing etc what's your memory of those final gigs because this is post confessions of a pop group this is ahead of what would be or go on to be your final album we'll talk about that in a second but ahead of modernism which is i don't know this garage house album is how it's mm-hmm. built, although i think it's more than that but you play this gig or these two gigs at the royal battle hall and play none of the hits which again is a is like i say you're constantly pushing forward constantly trying new things to the point that perhaps you're winding up the audience a little at times. But what do you remember about those final dates? Well, um, we we played the same set about a month before, maybe three weeks before in Japan. And we had such a great time. And everyone was open-minded to it. And people really seemed to enjoy it. And in a way, that may have spoiled us or made us overconfident about going forward with it. And uh, 
doing it at the Albert Hall. And and I suppose what didn't what didn't help matters was uh, our greatest hits came out, which we didn't really have control over. That I mean, yeah, once we knew it was happening, we got involved in the artwork and what have you. But um, we couldn't stop that contractually. And um, even though the Star Council on paper only existed for six years, and then if you add the beginning and the end, we really were around for nearly seven. In those six years, there were four different MDs at Polydor. So it was a bit weird to try and get a bit of a relationship. And the last MD came in and immediately he wanted the greatest hits. And I think he sort of had a look at the graph and thought, okay, the last two albums have started taking a downward spiral. And sometimes when they want to knock out the greatest hits, that can be the death knell for a band. So maybe, you know, things were looming. But we didn't really play ball because I suppose there may have been a proportion of the audience that might have expected a greatest hit show with the singular adventures of the Style Council, I think it was called. Volume one. It, yeah, I think we knew there weren't a volume two. I think that was <laughs> quite an ironic title. Yeah, so we didn't we didn't play our hits, I suppose. But um we thought we were just being kind enough to let some of the audience hear our future hits. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, you know, uh, I mean, all those tunes that people wanted to hear, if that's what they wanted to hear, they were all new at some point. You've got to move on. But I do think that it's grown, the mythology of that gig has grown a little. And I do think people actually mix us, the Albert Hall gig we did in 87 as well, because there was a little bit of unrest there because we Green Jerusalem as our sort of support at the Albert Hall. And I don't think a lot of the crowd liked that and they didn't get it and they just thought, what's this? And so there was a bit of unrest there. And I think people have merged those two nights, even though they're two years apart. Yeah, well, maybe some people were ripping up their programs and that. And I think there was a bit of a funny atmosphere. But since then, a little bit like um, Confessions, even that gig's been reappraised. And I've met a lot of people that say, I was there and I got it. I understood it. And they're really passionate about it. And, you know, is that a sort of true memory of it? Or are they aware of how sort of it's been put down? You know, it, it's just grown its own arms and legs, that story. And I, I, I kind of, I think people have mashed up three different nights and just made all the worst events happen on the same one. And you mentioned, I think it was on the documentary or maybe something else I read about, you already felt that it was coming towards the end of the style council. Well, I think, you know, when we we did the last album, uh, which didn't get released, uh, Modernism, A New Decade, obviously the title, we expected that to come out early in 1990. I think Paul and I felt like, you know, we could feel this dwindling sort of audience And I think, you know, we just sort of said, let's just do this album. It'll be really different again. It'll be influenced by a lot of current house music that we're listening to, which we thought was the new way soul music was going. I think when Acid House first came out, we found it a bit gimmicky and it was all about strange noises and weird yelps. But then once you started getting the deeper house stuff with really gospel influenced vocalists, we could make parallels with Curtis Mayfield, Philadelphia music. There was a lot of kind of warmth to it. We met some of those people when they were on tour and they'd come out of Pentecostal gospel backgrounds. So it was like the true roots of soul that goes all the way back to someone like Ray Charles. So it was a natural progression for us to get into that music and try and reflect the times with our new album. So we felt we had a good album and we thought we would um, get a few singles out of it and go on tour. And, uh, the new MD that has seemed to come, at, you know, 
like buses all turned up at once. But the, the new one that week just didn't like the album and he just stopped it. So I guess we projected 18 months hence thinking that this album will have a life and we will tour it and get a few singles off it. But then the rug was pulled early kind of thing. So we went out quite quietly, really. There was no big bang. But I think we wanted to honour a couple of charity things we had. So we sort of technically did make it into the 90s. I think we officially did a press release like March 1990, which would have been seven years after Speak Like a Child, I suppose. So was there a day when you just stopped then going into Solid Bond? It wasn't really because there was a community there and I was working on four different albums and they were all being done at Solid Bond. And the only one that didn't see the light of day was our one. <laughs> so I was working on Dee's album. She had a group name called Slam Slam. Dr. Robert from the Blow Monkeys was producing that. Dr. Robert was in the studio doing his own stuff as well, which I was playing on. And the beginnings of the Young Disciples album was beginning to take shape there which I was heavily involved in from the demo stage onwards. So all three of those acts got their album out, but we didn't. Well, we did, but nine years later or something, you know, it turned up on a box set and it saw the light of day. Pleased it saw the light of day, but it would have made a lot more sense in the times it was made. It was very much of its time. It's nice that it did actually finally get out there. But like, so I didn't stop going there. So I was still seeing Nikki, who worked in the office, still seeing John, seeing Anne when she was up there and bumping into Paul. Paul and Steve played on one track on the Young Disciples album. I played on nearly every track, but because I was involved with Femi and Marco from the uh, demo stage. But so we were on a track on there. And so it's kind of, it wasn't like a snap clean break do you know what I mean there was still things to be done and I was going in there and then when Paul had sort of regrouped and got his new thing together even then he sort of said oh can you pop down Solid Bond because there's a demo that we did that we wrote a song together called Strange Museum and I want to put it on the first album and I've forgotten the middle bit let's go through that again and so you know contributed to that and um, and I played on Wildwood and I played on Stanley Road only the big ones yeah, I was going to say, you've, you've played on the big ones. <laughs> so it's fifth, fifth season on Wildwood, and um, I think I'm right in saying recorded at the Manor in Oxfordshire. Was that right? Both, yeah, both those two right. albums, yeah. And Stanley Road, um, Broken Stones, the one that we all know and love. Everybody knows that. The Pebbles on the Beach song. Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, and Wings on Speed. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Broken Stones was an afterthought. Funny enough, for Stanley Road, I bumped into Paul at Nomis and played on demos for a couple of other tracks that are on there, but I didn't end up on the final version of them. They got someone called Steve Winwood to play on it. And, uh, <laughs> Never heard of him. So, yeah, they had to settle for someone like that, you know. But I was quite I was quite honoured that um, I think Marco Nelson was playing bass on the track and he said, Steve Winwood said, um, oh, I like what the fellow's doing on the demo, so I'm sort of doing that. And I was thinking, oh, God, I'm so, that's just really nice to hear, you know, (laughs) that I've had some sort of subliminal influence on someone that great. Yeah. But so, funny enough, I I sort of lived with those demos for a while, went down the manor, and like Paul goes, oh, no, we've done them. It's, uh, (laughs) we're just going to do Wings of Speed. And that was a weird session as well, because I played that on a church organ, but we wanted to record it live. And they run a cable that was, must have been about a quarter of a mile long down this hill to a little chapel 
in Oxford near the manor, and and I'm sort of on the other end of a sort of tin of baked beans, getting contact from Mission Control, going, yeah, we're going to get, and it was quite cold. And it was me, Dave Little, and, and he'd set up this temporary fire, and he got some sort of like Calagas thing to try and warm me up, and I had a duffel coat and mittens on, playing this sort of like bellows organ in the little chapel. But we got the take, and it worked, and it was all right. And then we had a listen back, because I think most of the tracks had been done, and, you know, we had a bit of a drink and something to eat. And uh, then I think it got to nearly midnight, and we'd already broken down for about three hours, and Paul went to Brendan, Oh, I've forgotten that other thing. I want Mick on that other thing. And the other thing was, yeah, I was on a beach, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> broken stones. So that was sort of a very last minute thing. And also, I just sort of said, I could have done with you telling me that three hours before we started drinking, you know. <laughs> but anyway, it turned out all right. The drinking was legendary as well. Dennis Monday um, has been on the show and he talks about the nights in Europe and he talks about just the culture of the band. And it's and it's not just the drinking, actually. It's that the whole thing feels like a big family. You mentioned so many people like Dave Liddell uh, and John Weller and both sadly no longer with us. Um, people like Kenny Wheeler has come up so much yeah, in the conversation yeah, yeah. and Nicky Weller and Anne and stuff. It feels like it's, it's a huge, big family that was involved in the Oh, South yeah. Listen, so I mean, there was, you know, there was plenty of partying, but it, was, it had a sort of different atmosphere to a lot of bands, really. It's not like I'm saying we, we were choir boys or anything, but it was, I could liken a sort of typical evening after a gig to being like you're at a cousin's 21st and it's a really good do. You know, it was like that was a sort of atmosphere. So you've got different generations and there's a kind of family vibe and it's a laugh, but it's not like, you know, the last days of Rome or anything, you know, mm. but, um, but it had its moments, you know. I mean, you know, you mentioned Dennis Mundy. He was, you know, he's a very funny fella, but he was very, very helpful to our first three years. He fought our corner, you know. There was quite a lot of uh, chin stroking and muttering about a lot of things we did, but he kind of was our bridge and uh, he spoke our language, you know, and we were very fortunate to have him as an A&R man, you know. Kenny Wheeler, I, didn't, didn't you get left in a service station once because of Kenny? Yes, I did, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. It was almost <laughs> like a sort of um, Norman Wisdom film, really. That's what I could liken it to. Because I thought it was a wind-up. I thought somebody there has just decided that there are, because it was a package tour, it was a Red Wedge thing, so there was like six different bands on one coach, I think. Maybe I was the last one to come back. and. Uh, and I thought maybe they're trying to teach me a lesson. Maybe they said, be 25 minutes and I've taken half an hour or something. I don't know. And I thought, oh, this is just a wind-up. But I'll play along with it. I'll chase the coach because they can't really be going all the way to, hang on, hang on. They're on the hard shoulder. We're nearly on a motorway. We're not, you know, we're not in oh, a You space. actually saw them driving off. Yes. And I'm trying to, <laughs> wind, that's why I'm saying it was like Norman Wisdom. I'm screaming Mr. Grimsdale, but I'm really screaming Kenny. And I'm just like, right, all right, but it's not funny anymore. <laughs> but I couldn't really keep up. But no one did see me. And I think that happened. That was in Leicester. And I think Leicester were, it was on Saturday, and Leicester were at home as well. And we were traveling back. And there was lots of football supporters <laughs> in this service station. But fortunately for me, as luck would have it, just very shortly afterwards, the merchandising people pulled into the same service station that quarter of an hour, 20 minutes later. And they just went, we'll give you a lift back to London. They had a van, but they had a spare seat. And it wasn't so much of a sweat, really, but then I think it was for Kenny. 
I mean, yeah. this is pre 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 mobile phones. As soon as I got to like, uh, I think I got to Waterloo, and uh, I got on a payphone, and I rang Kenny's wife Pat, and I just said, "Oh, it's Mick. I'm back in London." And she went, "He's waiting at Euston for you." And I just, I don't think I was at Euston. I, I don't know. I, I can't remember what station I was at, but it was a long time ago. But I said, oh, well, he's stuck there. And how's he going to? She went, well, he'll ring me eventually. But this is pre-mobile phones. I, mean, I suppose everyone had to be a lot more reliable then. You couldn't yeah. change plans <laughs> at the last minute. But I just said, oh, well, I feel sorry for him. I said, look, I just I missed the cut. And she went, serves him right for not doing his job. <laughs> he'll ring eventually. She said, but you'll be home before him. Yeah, yeah. So oh. It was weird the way it all played out. That's oh, funny. Um, um, you mentioned on Sunset and playing on Sunset. And the question I was going to ask you was, what does Paul get from you? So when you book Mick Talbot, and this is true of all the other bands that you've worked with, and we'll talk about Dexys in a second as well, because you've performed live with Paul in, in the years since the Style Council. You've obviously been on the albums. What is it that makes him give Mick Talbot a ring? And what is it that you bring to the party? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think I've got a thing. Um, I try and put emotion before anything else. I try and engage with a tune. Sometimes you may have it up front. Sometimes you just might hear it for the first time there and then. You have to try and be yourself within it. I am influenced by people, but the older you get, the more you get like yourself, you know, and um, I kind of do me. I have been booked on things for sessions for people where people accuse me of making them sound like other bands that I've worked with. And I just go, I'm not making you sound like anyone. I'm just playing the way I play. I mean, I've got this thing where I think I always play the same and everything else changes around me. And uh, they change the bass and drums and they call it a different genre of music. But I'm still doing my thing and I'm doing the same thing on it, whether you're calling it a country music tune or whether you're calling it anything, you know, Strauss Waltz or something. I'm still doing my thing. And uh, that's what I do. I mean, I think Paul chose the, the, those specific tracks because he thought they'd be up my street and um i think baptiste is probably my favorite of the ones that i've played on because it's got that kind of um soul thing and it's got that kind of new orleans sort of vamp to it and uh you know and it just felt natural and that happened pretty quick and it was just you know nice but it's, it's hard for me to say why people want me yeah, yeah. i know you know that initial thing that Paul heard me like, you know, donkeys years ago, he heard something in it and, um, and it worked. And if the song's right, then he knows what I can do on it. You know? Yeah. You mentioned that. So, I mean, that song sounds so good. Really, really loud. When everybody else has left the house, whack, it's brilliant. Honestly, I love that. But, but Neil Jones or Joneses, I now know from the Stone, Stone Foundation, mentioned the same thing of, of just that flavour that you add to songs and, and the work that you've done with him. And But the Ocean Colour scene as well, I hadn't realised this until today, that you played on a couple of the Ocean Colour scene songs as, as Mick Full Beam Talbot and Mick Monkey Talbot, apparently. Is that right? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm at, nearly every every act I've worked with has got a fresh nickname for me. I think, you know, Galliano had a strange... Uh, had a few nicknames there. I think, you know, I was Mikey T. I was something else as well. But I seem to inspire a lot of nicknames, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, I did do quite a bit with Ocean Colour Scene. I've done, done lots of things, you know. It's funny, when I've worked with Craig Charles, he, he does a funk and soul show for Six, mm. BBC Six. We did a bit of a house band thing for him for a few years where we used to play live on his show. And um, one guy, uh, Lee, we had to put a thing together and it was called the Fantasy Funk Band, and they did a few live events. And we were playing a couple of Northern Soul tunes, 
and, and it leads you to me, when you play Northern Soul, it sounds like the style counts. And I just go, well, that's kind of a bit arse about face, really. It's just, you know, we're influenced by Northern Soul, so when I try and play it, I sort of play like me. And he just went, no, but my wife said it, and she's a big style counter. And she was out front and just went, those two specific tunes, and just go, well, it's just something, it's just habits that you do, you know. And your personal style is as much about what you can't do as what you can do. It makes you do something a unique way, and then that becomes your signature, I guess. Yeah. And working with Kevin Rowland, so you've been part of the Dexys lineup for well, actually three separate occasions now, I think, isn't So, So right before the original band split, and I don't know if you had anything to do with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all my fault. Yeah. It was like uh, the band <laughs> turned up. Um, but the com- then the comeback in 2003, and then you co-wrote the album in 2012 and were part of the um, producing that album as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've been involved in different ways in different eras. But um, What's Kevin like to work with? How does he differ to Paul? He's very different. I would say the things that they share are their passion for music and their passion for clothes, albeit quite different. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, Kevin likes to really work a lot on things. He's not really about that kind of spontaneous thing. He likes everything to be well prepared and it works for what he wants to do and it helps him perform to his optimum. I'm not sure that that's my favourite way of doing things, but I understand that that's the only way he can do things. So, uh, you know, I can recall working on Dexy's tracks where in one evening you you might do like 19 takes on something that wouldn't, you wouldn't even get into double figures with the style council. You just go, this, this isn't working. Not that we'll ditch it. We might come back to it again, or we might go away for six weeks. And if there's anything good about it, we'll remember it and we'll know what to do to change it. But I don't think that we'd go on all night playing a track that, that long, whereas Kevin would, you know, so that's a, an example I could think of yeah. how different the process was. How does it differ playing live? Yeah, the same, the, yeah I think uh, it's the same thing with Kevin. I mean, a lot of his stuff, he's very, he's very theatrical to the point where it will be a complete show and the songs will be like chapters of a story and the set list will probably never change, whereas Paul could write a different set list every night. So it could be quite spontaneous or he could just throw something in because – because the crowd seem a certain way. But that, that's very unlikely to happen with uh, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of Kevin's thing, especially the last show I did, even the stuff between songs, the kind of dialogue was almost like prose from a play. So you kind of would learn the prose between the songs because certain words were a cue. And I was a musical director and there's a band of like 10 people so I've got to be on my toes to listen to like a key word, and there may be some, <laughs> there may be some improvisation. But then hopefully you get back to the key three-word phrase, and once that magic word is said, I'm sort of there going two, three, four, yeah. and you know. Brilliant. Hey, look, I realise I've taken your entire Sunday evening, so I'm going to do some <laughs> quick-fire questions from the fans, and then I'm going to leave you to have the rest okay. of the night. Um, Stephen Williams, who is or was the Cappuccino Kid? Can you tell us? Well, it was an amalgam of many things, and uh, we, you know. I don't say that me and Paul sat by the typewriter, but we had an influence and, you know, so did Simon Halfon, but uh, largely the person who was left to do it was Paolo Hewitt. 
who's a, who's a journalist and a friend of Ben. Uh, Mr. Cole's dream, otherwise known as Ian Munn, said, I know what not to ask him. I don't know what that means, but I'm hoping well, it's not I, one of the I, questions. I, I, I wish I knew what not to ask me. <laughs> I don't I'm hoping I, I it's don't not one of the questions I've asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I haven't got any uh, <laughs> stern requests about not asking me anything. Uh, Lisa Kaufman, what Style Council song does he wish he'd sung lead on and why? I loved his vocal on Homebreakers. Wonder why he didn't sing lead more. Um, well, Homebreakers is the only one I sung lead on all the way through. I did sing a little bit on um, Man of Great Promise. I sung some of the bridge. Uh, and I did take a verse in the second version. We did a head start for happiness where I have the opening verse, Paul has a second one, and then D has a third one. It's like almost like a relay race, that song. Mm. And then we harmonise in a three-part thing near the end. So that was a kind of conceptual thing. And if it was right for the song, it was right. I mean, Homebreakers was a song I had a lot of, most of the music for that, and Paul wrote the lyrics. But the lyrics were very pertinent to the kind of plight my dad and my youngest brother were in, were in actually. If you know the song, it's about um, unemployment and people being made redundant and the sort of, Unions being smashed in the mid eighties, and uh, it's not that my dad was a miner or anything like that, but it was just happening in the uh, print union as well. He was part of SOGAT, and so was my little brother. And so Paul thought that that sort of echoed some of the things he thought he'd overheard me saying about my family. Like my dad was in the same job from like leaving school at fifteen to fifty, and then all of a sudden that sort of went up up the wall. And so those lyrics are quite personal to me and Paul sort of said I think you should sing it it's not that I think I'm anything any great shakes but it, it gives it a slight different character but um I was happiest when we were able to experiment with um harmonies in the you know so I wasn't worried about doing um lead vocal I really enjoyed doing things like Long Hot Summer where I'm the very highest voice in that when I had a bit of a falsetto and things like a B-side we did called It Just Came to Pieces in My Hand. Oh, that's just got a kind of barbershop thing. Yeah. And that's just me and Paul. It's like two of me and two of Paul. And I'm the highest and I'm the lowest. And he's the two in the middle. Oh, right. That's just going do 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 <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that live as well. There's the um, Far East, Far Out gig which is, I think I've only I've only got on VHS like most other people. Yeah, do. we used to do it as an a cappella thing. Yeah, yeah with just a bit of organ. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, get Anthony and Helen to do the other bits, I think, and maybe a few of the others. On. Yeah, no, it's great. The Magic Mod, lovely guy. He says I've met Mick a few times. He thought my mum was my sister at the Greenwich Paul Weller show. Mum loves him for that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> Two final questions from the fans. Arthur J. Proofrock, I think this is his Twitter handle, uh, says that what's the, the relationship between free jazz and socks? Which I have to be honest, I didn't get the question. So this is obviously some inside reference that I've missed. Yeah, I think it alludes to some of the uh, monologue of uh, Richard Coles in the Jerusalem. Oh, film. right. Okay. I think he <laughs> mentions that at some point, and it may even be in a sleeve note as well, but I think... I think it's part of the, the voiceover on Jerusalem, right. which is the Reverend <laughs> Richard Coles. Nice, nice. Um, and Basley10 says, do you still see the Style Council as a kind of, quote, music karma sutra? So that, <laughs> which was, right, yeah. I don't know if it was you or Paul who said that, actually, but yeah. I think, I think it was Paul. I think Paul said that because I said, I think my answer was, I'm glad you've made your position clear on it. <laughs> 
But it's just this is the pressure you're under on a live TV interview when you're doing your first gig and it's Chippenham Gold Diggers and it's being filmed. And you're thinking, why don't we uh, do a warm-up tour before we decide to let cameras in? <laughs> So, yeah, that was nuts. I, I thought that was at the, I thought that gig was at the end of the tour, and it's only recently when I've been talking to the councillors that I realised it was that was the very first like gig of that tour. That's my tour, live on TV and live on radio. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, <laughs> you've got to start somewhere. You know, <laughs> <laughs> why not at the very top? Um, Mick, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for your time. I have two final questions for you. The same questions that all my guests get asked. You're allowed one song for the rest of your life. Which one will it be? I always position it as Paul Weller, but actually for you, it can be the Jam, the Style Council or the Paul Weller solo years. But I'm guessing you're going to pick Style Council. So which one would you go for? Um, That's a tough one. It is tough. Can I pick a single? But because of everything that's on it. Yeah, know, like please do. Value for money. But I would say the Arperi EP. I'm sort of cheating there because that gets boring. <laughs> but I, I always just say that was a kind of pivotal point in our first year where we showed our versatility and we showed four different strands that we would follow. And without that EP, there wouldn't have been Cafe Blur. And I think you can kind of align a lot of our best stuff to one of those four things you know there's a jazzy instrument or there's quite a plaintive piano piece which is almost like soundtracky there's a sort of torch song that could almost be a jazz standard with the kind of voicings of the chords with like Paris match and there's like a kind of thing that embraces vintage and contemporary soul as a very strong influence so those four tunes and that EP and the week that we spent making it and the fun and the you know, frivolity and the serious nature of the sounds that went into the grooves. You know, you know, I'm a bit biased, but that would be my favourite record, I think, of yeah. course. I thought if you were going to pick an EP, I was expecting you to go Mick Talbot is Agent 88. Well, that, that technically, they were all reissues that were grouped <laughs> together. It wasn't meant to be an EP, but, you know, it was quite <laughs> a handy the, little format. Yeah, or the King Truman one. I thought, I thought you might, might pull that out of the bag. But, well, that's yeah. full of mythology, and even the person behind it, you know, can't tell the story the same <laughs> twice. So uh, <laughs> you might have to leave that there. Uh, final question, Mick. This has been a delight. The purpose of this podcast is for me to be able to have a chat with Paul, the one that I never managed to get throughout my radio career that I gave up 10 years ago without ever speaking to the legend. If I do manage to get that conversation, what should I talk to Paul about? You should talk to him about what he's heard lately that he likes, because it's what I most regularly talk to him about. He's real, you know, fan of music and he never stopped being a fan of music and he's always got a quest for what's new and who's out there he's always been a very encouraging person as well he's kind of person who's kind of got a power in the studio to make you believe you can do something that you, you don't think you're quite up to so he kind of builds people's confidence and he's like that with a lot of new artists and he likes to uh, encourage them you know helps them out with sort of studio time if he believes in them and stuff I think that's his passion, it's only got stronger as he's got older, I think. And so it's not just music either. I mean, it's just books, films and trousers, you know. <laughs> it's just, you know, living, breathing up. But he is just so on top of what's good that's new, you know. Yeah. 
And that's, I'm always getting little texts with links to things, and you think, oh, that's great. For this new Icelandic singer, and you think, oh, God, I don't know much about it. But it turns out it's a guy that looks like a Viking but sings like Curtis Mayfield, you know. And it's like, <laughs> Where did he Who find is that? that? I need to dig this out. Who is this? <laughs> I'm trying to remember his name. Oh, what's his name? Um, his name, Junius, Junius Myvant or something like that. Junius, a bit like Julius, but with yeah. an N. Yeah. Junius Myvant. And I think he's got a band with his brother. And he does look like Thor, but he really, you wouldn't think he was Icelandic. He sounds so immersed in classic soul, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. Where's he getting the time or how is he finding this? I can't wait to have that conversation. Anyway, uh, Mick Talbot, this has honestly been one of the best two hours of my entire life. I've loved every second of this. Thank you so much, my friend. This has been a joy. Okay, well, I hope it all works out in the edit. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to edit? Why are we going to (laughs) bother? Cheers, Mick. Thanks for your time. More power to you. I hope it all leads where it's supposed to. All the best with it all. Cheers. My thanks once again to Mick. What a lovely guy and what a journey he took us on for this episode. Plus, thanks to Nikki Weller for the intro to Mick as well. If you enjoyed this episode, then please drop a donation to Romney House Cat Rescue. Nikki has been fundraising for the charity since lockdown. And right now they're operating in crisis mode with vet bills, no government funding, and they can't host their usual events because of the COVID restrictions. So anything you can do to help would be greatly appreciated. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Now, don't forget to share this episode on social media. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Facebook and Instagram. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.